Welcome to Passing Mirrors CAM Podcast, conversations on aerodigestive management. This episode of CAM features your host, Dr. Kristen King, and guest, Dr. Rachel Johnson, having a conversation on ethics and communication, part two. Welcome again, everyone, to another episode of Conversations on Area Digestive Management, the CAM podcast. We are here for our final episode of season two, and I have with me again, Rachel Johnson, speech-language pathologist, and special guest today, Tiffany Oaks, speech-language pathologist. Tiffany's usually behind the scenes, but she's jumping out in front in order to continue our conversation where we were talking about the rights of patients for accessing communication and ethical considerations. And so we're going to be continuing that conversation that we started with Rachel in our previous podcast. So let's start out since we ended the last podcast talking about competency and presumed competence. Let's start there and talk about that a little bit with presumed competence. This comes up a lot in the hospital where we'll get the ask, we'll get asked the question, by the doctors, are they competent? As speech language pathologists, we're testing cognition and staff will want to know, are they competent? We do look at cognition, but is that a question we can really answer? Tiffany, what's your thought on that? There is a big difference between competency and capacity, and we cannot declare competency. That is something that is more of a legal definition. It's something that really goes before a judge. There are lots of factors involved with that. It includes decisions on much more than just medical decisions, and it's a long-standing thing. Compared to capacity, which may be temporary, that can be declared by doctors, that can be looked at on more of a medical standpoint. So looking at is the patient competent, we really do have to assume competency because we're not the ones making that call. There is a very lengthy process to remove someone's competency from them. So it's much safer when we're practicing to, for our license to assume the patient had competency and to assume that the patient had capacity than to treat them like they don't. That's going to be a much more dangerous situation and an ethical complication to assume that a patient is not competent or capacitated. And when we get asked that question by the doctor, because we just tested their cognition and they're like, hey, so are they competent? Can they make their own decisions? You know, how should we look at answering that question? I think just in that medical setting, it should be more of a question of is the patient capable of making decisions right now? What is the patient's capacity? Because we really aren't on the medical side. They're going to be the ones involved with that declaration of competency. Like I said, that really is going to involve more than the medical. So instead it should be, is the patient or is the patient capable of making these decisions? What's that patient's ability right now? Because that may be temporary and that could certainly change over the course of two or three days. But do we need somebody like a power of attorney to step in and make decisions at this particular point for this particular decision? And there are ways to assess that capacity and we may be part of that process. We have to make sure patients have rights to communication in order to really participate in that kind of an assessment. Now, I would sometimes answer the doctors only in the sense of, well, they, how accurate they were say with yes, no questions, or they could follow simple directions. As you said, we can't determine competency. That's really a, a legal term. And we'd often talk about the fact that that has to go 
you know, to court and is a whole different process. One of the things we do want to make sure we're aware of when we see patients too, is if they have a healthcare power of attorney or a power of attorney or someone who's dealing with their affairs, because that may be someone we have to consult with depending on what our plan of care is. The, um, but Rachel, I want to pull you back into this discussion. So what's, do you have any thoughts you want to add on this idea of presumed competence? You know, and, and one of the other things that, that, that presuming competence really is important is when you have someone who can't communicate, they are at risk for being taken advantage of, right? So, because who are they going to tell? How are they going to tell someone that they're being violated or, you know, they're being abused if they don't have a way to communicate? Um, Stephanie Fasov, she has an amazing, um, it was an AC in the cloud talk that she did. And it was talking about all of the rights and being presumed competence as an adult who uses AAC to communicate. And just this, the one thing that really hit me hard was going to a doctor's office and having the right to talk with the physician without having somebody else in the room with them. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I was like, wow, like, you're right. There are some things that are really personal and that person who is, you know, their attendant who is helping them get to all these doctor's appointments, they're always in the room, right? But sometimes there are things you want to talk to your physician about where they're not in the letter very private. And to have that private conversation, that's something I think a lot of us take for granted. I certainly did until I heard that. I was like, wow, I had never really thought of that before. I ran into that same thing with attorneys in the hospital where a a patient I had had been say in an accident and there was a lawsuit involved and the attorneys were coming in to take statements or depositions. They actually came in sometimes and did full depositions and we had to figure out a way for all of us, for us to be out of the room, but for the patient to still be able to communicate Mm -hmm. and participate in whatever they were needing to do with them. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, there's all types of legal ramifications with that. And, and, Mm -hmm. So patients definitely need that autonomy, that ability to be by themselves to speak. And you started to say something. Just like a doctor's office. I did home health for many years and it happened all the time. Like my patient lived with their son or daughter or whomever, but they didn't want them in the room during the treatment time. And that was always like a fuss, like, sorry, like I, this is my patient. This is the person who I am treating. And they are saying that they don't want you here while I'm doing it. So You're bringing up a big, a big point. We are really supposed to ask at the beginning of every session, if other people are in there, you know, if they want those people in the room, they have the right to say no to that. And for those people to leave, whether the family wants to be there and observe or, or whatever, um, it's the patient has that right. Well, the adult patients, um, when Mm -hmm. I say that the adult patients have that right to say, I don't want anyone in the room. And Uh, We should be, I mean, it's a HIPAA violation really to do therapy and not have the patient's permission for those people to be hearing Mm -hmm. what you're doing and saying to them and, you know, what the discussions are Mm -hmm. if without permission. Right. Well, and even being part of that plan of care, you know, it's not for us to make that plan of care. It's for us to be collaborative in that plan of care. Um, And I think 
sometimes we lose sight of that because we're so busy really in writing these goals, right? But then are those goals really important for that person and having them part of that? Um, you know, a lot of people, um, persons who have aphasia, you know, they're, they have that loss of right words, but they really have specific things that they want to get out of therapy. And it's going to be different for each person, but they have to have a way to communicate that. This is something that's really important for me because it's going to help me to be independent in my, in my situation. And um, just, and also allowing them the ability to say, can you please tell my, my care partner this information too? So when I go home, I'm not restricted from doing that because there's that piece of it as well. And what we say in therapy is okay, but then if their care partner at home doesn't know that, there can be, you know, limitations within that as well. So that whole collaboration, right? It's got to be everyone who is part of their world is involved with that and we're all on the same page. Rachel, that's a really good point about collaboration and plan of care and everybody having their role in the plan and setting those goals. So let's talk about that just a bit more on how it kind of ties into that presumed competence and the plan of care, the goals that we set for our patients and focus a little on just that, that plan of care and what we need in order to have an appropriate one in place. So Tiffany, do you have any thoughts you want to add to what Rachel was saying about having the collaboration and the patient's ability to participate in that plan of care? With ASHA, we do have that beautiful, colorful triangle of evidence-based practice where we look at all of those pieces and how we integrate those components into these very careful evidence-based decisions and making these good decisions for our patients. But part of that, like we have our clinical expertise, we have the evidence, the research, but we also, one whole side of that is that client perspective. It is the input from the patient themselves, their personal values, what their goals are going to be, and how are they going to be able to express that to us if we have not established functional communication? How are we saying that we are providing actual evidence-based practice without any kind of input from the patient? One of the pillars of healthcare ethics is establishing that fiduciary relationship, that trust between the clinician and the patient. Ideally, there's a few different kinds of relationships there. Ideally, what we're finding is that more deliberative relationship where we're kind of working together to meet the patient's goals. And if we don't include the patient, we run into that more paternalistic relationship where we're making decisions on behalf of the patient. And that does not seem fair. I agree about it not seeming fair. Uh, and we definitely need to have the patient participating in their care. And I've got an example of that, um, that I'll share where if a patient doesn't have good communication, doesn't have the ability if we haven't established some form of communication for them, it could seriously impact their care and kind of what's being done for them. And first of all, we as speech language pathologists are supposed to be specialists in communication. And 
Well, you need to first think too about the whole patient because we don't communicate just by our voice. I mean, there, you know, there's gestures, body language, facial expressions, all, you know, there's all types of things that we know are involved in communication. I have this one patient that the nurses told me was very agitated and she had had a stroke. She was globally aphasic, uh, appeared globally. Let me, let me back that up. She appeared globally aphasic. That's what the nurse, I was being told. She's globally aphasic, very agitated. She doesn't understand anything. She can't communicate, et cetera. And I got in the room and they were right. She was very agitated. But in working with her, I could tell, first of all, she was not globally aphasic. She had receptive comprehension. She just didn't have any expressive language. And as I kept working with her, and she had some impairment receptively, but not, she wasn't global. And as I sat there working with her, she's agitated and agitated. So I started asking her, I'm like, what's wrong? It was like something had to be causing, you know, this much movement and agitation and everything. And she couldn't move a whole lot. She had a hemiparesis, but she kind of gestured slightly with her arm. And she kept always, she was moving a little bit and kind of tweaking her shoulder and always to the same side. And I had her lean forward because we have the head of bed up. I had her lean forward and I asked her, I said, do you mind if I move your hospital gown? And she's like, she shook her head. No. So I opened up her gown and she had, it was about 12 inches around across a massive hematoma and was bleeding out into her back where Mm -hmm. she was on heparin. She was on blood thinners and something, whatever had caused it. And it was massive. And, um, I went and got the nurses and they came in. They're like, Oh my gosh, we didn't even know. Don't, we won't get into why that hadn't been seen as you know, she was cared for. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. Um, but my point being, there was a reason for the agitation mm-hmm. and she had better understanding and communication than she had been given credit for. They were mm-hmm. not presuming competence. They were presuming incompetence mm-hmm. and that she couldn't communicate anything. And she actually could, um, you know, and so we found a big problem. They took her off the heparin, et cetera. And they had, but she had to actually have that drained and have a lot of work done. It was, it was huge. And, um, and I'm just sharing that in regards to what you said about presumed competence, you know, Mm -hmm. don't think that a patient's agitated just because they're agitated or they can't communicate because they can't speak, you know, and that type of thing, we've got to presume competence. Well, I would say that the agitation and her gestures is communication. We're just, right. Like we're just, you know, it is up to us to be the ones to interpret what that. Okay. So clearly there's something that's agitated like you, like you did. Right. Um, when you're communicating agitation, something's wrong. You're saying, right. That's an indicator. Something is wrong. Something doesn't feel right. Something is bothering you. Right. But you just can't get out the details of it, you know, specifically to say there's something odd back there. Right. Um, right. So. It hurts. Yeah. Right. Like it hurts. Like, can you look at that? You know, she couldn't get the words out to say that, but clearly there was something wrong. Rachel, you make another good point when you say that about she was communicating. I even, I had made kind of a presumption in my statement, my story that I was sharing that she was not communicating. And really what it was is it was not effective with the staff because the staff didn't know how to interpret it. And we talked about plan of care and Tiffany talked about evidence-based 
approaches to, with our patients and that pillar of the patient's ability to participate. And this patient was participating. She just couldn't get her point across. And that may lead to the need for staff education, not just what we do with the patient, but educating the staff. Tiffany, do you have any thoughts on areas or what might benefit staff training? Like, is there something we could do in that realm that might help with the plan of care or with the communication? That? When we are working with a patient, it's easy for sometimes as an SLP to kind of figure out what that most effective method was and then just kind of leave it there, but making sure that other clinicians from other disciplines and other shifts all understand what that means when we leave that in the orders is going to be a really important part of our job to make sure that the patient can effectively communicate when we aren't present because we can't be with every patient all the time. We try, but we yeah. can't do it. So making sure that across the shifts, across the disciplines. So if we're establishing this, maybe we are doing a little bit of training. Maybe we are trying to make sure that if it's a consistent attempt that we're making, if it's a usual strategy for us, that that's part of onboarding for new employees or annual competencies to show that mm -hmm. I understand this patient has difficulty initiating communication. So we're gonna do something different with that call bill. I'm not gonna call them and say, what do you want? When I know that they're a nonverbal communicator. So making sure that those kinds of things are addressed maybe on the front end. Tiffany, you made a good point when you talk about even the onboarding and making sure that the staff and anyone who's going to be interacting with that patient is aware of what their needs are and kind of how they communicate. And that takes me back a little bit to something Rachel mentioned earlier about not even just the positive side of communication, but patients having access to the right vocabulary so they can convey what's happened to them. Yeah, and kind of like the risks that Rachel was talking about earlier, when we don't have consistent access to communication across the board, the risks associated with that for these patients. Uh, and I want to go back to your point. You said that about um, the so a patient being taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that is something that we have to be aware of, that that can happen, whether it's personal and it's an outside person or whether it's a staff person mm -hmm. um, or even just the patient's comfort level with the care that they're being provided, you know, and what might be going on. That is something that we need to be aware of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Access to the vocabulary. There's a lot of discussion in the AC community about um, having access to vocabulary, like their body, you know, all the different body parts, having access to vocabulary to talk about um, sex or their period or those very personal and intimate details for a kid or even curse words, right? So there's a lot of discussion about that being part of the ethical right. And just like any other person who is verbally speaking, you have access to that vocabulary, right? So they should be allowed to have access to that vocabulary as well. And in the same realm as a verbally speaking person, understand or being, you know, given the guidance of when is it appropriate to use that kind of language and when is it not appropriate to use, right, the language, but still having access to all of those, those words as well and not being the gatekeepers of the vocabulary, so to speak. The right to refuse. 
vocabulary, mm -hmm. the ability to refuse. I know it's not probably popular. I'm a huge advocate for patients and their right to refuse. So that's part of it. And then working with the, with the patient, navigating that. Yes. But if they don't have the right to say no, things are just done to them, not right. done with them. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it, it, just like everybody, just treat them like a human, right? I mean, they, it, that, that is really our role and, um, helping them navigate it. Do you want access to this? Um, is there, you know, is this something that is important for you to have access to and communicate whatever it is, cultural things, um, personal, being intimate with their partner, having access to the vocabulary to do that. And I have seen clinicians who write things like the patient's not competent because they, they're say they have, because they have some cognitive mm -hmm. deficits. And that's something that comes up a lot. And Tiffany made a good point at the beginning. That's really competency is a legal definition also, mm -hmm. not just right. our presumption of competence, but that's a legal definition. We cannot address competency anyway. We shouldn't be saying whether a patient is or is not competent. As you mentioned, Tiffany, it's got to go to a judge. I mean, it's not something that we, mm -hmm. uh, determine when we're working with patients. Mm -hmm. And then, like you said, patients have the right to refuse. That's a big one for people. Mm -hmm. I've seen people get really kind of agitated about that and say, you know, and, and actually say, my patient has such an attitude. They refuse to participate in therapy. I'm like, they have a right to refuse. They have a right to fire their doctor and their clinician, right? And if you're not a good fit for them, they have a right to fire you. <laughs> I mean, just because to be really honest, like not all doctors are, you know, they can be a great doctor, but they not not be the right doctor for any one person, right? And you have a right to not see them and seek someone else. And the same with the clinician. Maybe, you know, if they're not wanting to work with them and refusing therapy, Perhaps it's because it's not a good fit for them and they don't feel comfortable working with that clinician or don't feel that the clinician is listening to them and they'd like someone else. Don't take it personal. You're just not a good fit. And they have a right to make those choices and just like everybody else does. And what if the patient is refusing some kind of care? It's really important that we don't consider a patient refusing care as an adversary while they may be perceived as uncooperative sometimes, these patients are typically making these decisions in unfamiliar, stressful environments. Sometimes what they feel like is their best care in those situations may be different than what we think it's going to be. And that's their way of maintaining their autonomy. And do we know why? Are they afraid? Is there a lot of pain? Is it a prior negative experience? Does it even matter so long as we respect that that patient has that right to refuse and then work with the patient? Typically, in a healthcare situation, we're trying to do what's best for the patient. We're trying to make sure the patient receives the best possible care, and that refusal of care does not end that responsibility. So then working with that patient, maybe coming up with a plan B or a plan C sometimes for these patients, just making sure that our goal is not to change the patient's mind or pressure that patient into accepting care. Instead, making sure that they have that what they need to make an informed decision, know their options, know that their concerns are being addressed, 
And then sometimes filling in those gaps, if we find them in knowledge or reassuring the patient, we can kind of get where we wanted to go with these patients anyway. But it's important that they're able to express that with us and work with us in making sure they can communicate that with us. And they need the language to be able to convey those choices. Right. And know that, right? And and know that that is their right. They need that vocabulary and we need to listen to them. They have that right. And we want to presume competence. I think those are some really good points. Um, even I, you know, I think you can throw in there for the ethics piece of it is collaborating with other professionals, um, doing that interprofessional collaboration to ensure that, um, you know, sometimes having PT and OT understand where our role is within that communication piece of it to, um, you know, communicate with them what is important for within their goals. And sometimes if they're aware of that and they're working with a client who might be having a hard time communicating, if they understand what we can provide for that, then they can refer to us and then we can kind of help with that communication piece of it. Um, We do a lot of counseling. Uh, It just kind of naturally becomes part of us. But even for those who might need to seek more professional counseling to, you know, have part of our communication pieces, ensuring that when they have things that that really need to be helped on a professional level, they have a vocabulary and the professional who, who is working with them understands the strategies that they're using. So carrying through on um, making sure that all those on the team are aware of what strategies are helpful and how to help the patient be a good communicator and participation in their care as well. You mentioned counseling and that made me think of something. Don't forget the family members and the caregivers because I've had, it made me think of a situation where I had a patient and he had had, it was his second or third stroke and he was in a wheelchair and he had a new wife. She, they'd only been married like six years when he had us. And then he had his first stroke and the second stroke. So it was a young marriage and they were an older couple, but they, it was a young marriage. And she actually one day was talking to me about her needs and her feelings of loss and, you know, how their whole relationship had changed. And they had some loss of intimacy and loss of the ability to communicate. And she said, it's just not the person that I married six years ago. And she was having a really hard time. And I would recommend that Clinicians have a list of resources, a list of counselors, different people or organizations, support groups, et cetera, in their area. Like, go ahead and look those up. Don't wait until you have the patient in the office. Like, go ahead and make a resource list that you can have available to share with patients and family members, you know, to help give them that support that they may need. And I would even go as far, I've, I've given advice in the past too, if one doesn't exist and you're seeing there's a need, create one. Another good point. <laughs> create a support group. Nope. Mm-hmm. Find out how other groups have done it and, yeah. and do. And I'll, when I was teaching, I had a local stroke support group. They had, they always did a community outing once a month and they had talked to me. They, anyway, they're, members came to class and the students got to meet in small groups and rotated through to talk to each member of the stroke support group. And the students all said that that was by far the most eye-opening 
most um, educational activity they had had in their graduate program, hearing from the patients. You know, I'd recommend that to people, you know, get involved with support groups and Mm -hmm. even as clinicians, you know, it's going to help us understand better what patients need because later on, they're able to tell you some of the things like, gosh, early on, I didn't have this, or I didn't know that, or they didn't tell me this, you know, I, I, I wish I had known in the beginning, you know, this piece of information, and it really can help shape some of the information you share with your patients currently. Yeah. And um, persons who use uh, aphasia, they have um, a really, through Isaac and uh, USAC, they have um, a, a group of them that meet regularly together as part of uh, their support group, you know, to say, but they also have done some amazing um, developed research studies and have done some research and presenting on their their views and their perspectives of um, their journey and, and things that are really important for all of us to consider. So I would always say go to those and listen to them and what they're sharing because it really is very eye-opening and relevant. And several of them have also um, offered to be mentors for those who use AAC. So some individuals who may be trying to navigate and what are some uh, you know, maybe strategies, how do I deal with this situation as an AAC user, there are opportunities to connect them with mentors so that they can get guidance, those who are using AAC to communicate, get guidance um, from those who have those experience already and navigating that and have that support. I think that's great, great advice too. Well, Rachel, I want to thank you for speaking with me again about that presumption of competence and the rights of the patient. Tiffany, I'm glad you joined us on this podcast, our last podcast of the season. So it's nice to have you joining in live and us chatting a little bit about the needs that patients have. So I appreciate the time both of you have given again, and thank you for joining in. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity to hop on here to our season finale of season two of Passy Muir's CAM podcast. I do want to invite our listeners to seek out other educational opportunities that Passimir has available as you are anxiously awaiting season three to begin. Be sure to check out our remote live in services where you can receive live education, our pre-recorded webinars that are available, and be on the lookout for those dates and locations of live in-person seminars that we're going to be having come up as well as some virtual opportunities for education. And always feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions or if you have any suggestions on podcast topics or speakers. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of CAM. We are happy to offer continuing education credit through ASHA for this podcast. To receive credit, please go to www.passymure.com podcast and click on the continuing education link under this episode. Then you will either create an account or log into your existing education portal account. Complete the quiz and course evaluation for your podcast episode. Your certificate will be available for download once completed.